Well, sadly, um, we had some PA issues on Sunday, and so um, I am re-recording the sermon from this morning, the 21st of May, um, Joshua chapter 5. Uh, let me pray for us, and then um, we'll have a look at the passages together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to slow down, um, to look together at your word, to see what it is you are saying to us. And yet, Lord, we don't simply want a better grasp of Joshua 5, but we long that we might hear your voice. Would you soften our hard hearts? Would you open our deaf ears? Would you open afresh our blind, our blind eyes that we might see something of your glory and your beauty this morning? And that we might be a people who live in response to your beauty and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we live in a world where everything is fast. We can do more, we can do it quicker, we can measure productivity and efficiency and profit margin and cramming all we can into the day, seeking to maximise our outputs. That's, that's true in business, that's just true in our little lives. And technology means we're always on the go with email when we want it, with social media when we want it, with, with WhatsApp and podcasts and, and all kinds of things. Not a moment needs to be wasted anymore. We can do one or two or more things at once. I'm told you can watch YouTube and do homework if you're a teenager and that's absolutely fine. We, we can make every second count cramming so much into our days. And of course, there are very good things about that. We're to be godly stewards of all that we've been given. And and yet don't so easily you find that, that that activism and productivity so often can come at the expense of other things. We find it so easy to to not switch off, to not rest, to not slow down. We We find it hard to simply be. To know our God, to, to listen to him and to speak to him, we've always got to have something going on. We live in a world where everything is fast. And, and as we reach Joshua chapter 5 and we reach verse 1, it, it rather feels like all systems go. It rather feels like th- that is where we are. So 5 verse 1, have a look now. When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear. They they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. You see that the story so far in Joshua, that God's people finally, finally have entered the land that he has promised them. And we've seen in this series, chapter one, it it was all about leadership transition. Moses died and so the baton was passed on to Joshua and and the people trusted Joshua because they trusted the Lord. Just because Moses dies, the Lord's promises, the Lord's faithfulness to his people do not die with him. In chapter two, it was the spies, remember, heading into Jericho, hearing from Rahab the prostitute that the Canaanites had heard the stories of God's power and faithfulness. They had promised to protect Rahab and her family. They looked after her because she sheltered them. Last week in chapters 3 and 4, it was all about the people crossing the Jordan. Do you remember as as Matt was teaching the children in the slot? Do you remember the priests went in with the Ark of the Covenant before them and, and the waters piled up and ceased to flow and all the people crossed over? 
And last week, the chapter, chapter 4, ended with a promise in verse 24. Have a look down. It's, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And so you reach 5 verse 1 and it feels like activity. It feels like all systems go. It feels like we should be getting some momentum up as they go into the land. The neighbours have heard of God's power just as he said they would. So it's the Amorites to the to the west of the Jordan in the hill country with their, their fortified settlements. And, and the Canaanites who lived on the plains and down to the coast of the Med. And both groups have heard about chapter 4. Them crossing the Jordan. And both groups are terrified. They know the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so come on, what are we waiting for? Let's go, momentum is building. Let's ride the crest of this wave. And the big surprise, though, as we reach chapter five, our chapter for this morning, it's as if the Lord simply presses pause on the whole thing. And he puts the brakes on. Have a look down at the text and you'll see he does that as he as he says two things to Joshua. It's there in verse two. And it's there as well in verse nine. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. And then down to verse nine. Do you see? Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. What's going on? What's this all about? Why has the Lord pressed pause at this point? Why? Well, no, there are lots of reasons that he presses pause, but here are two for us just for this morning. The first one is, it's as if he's saying, look back at the story of two generations. That is, as we work our way through the verses this morning, we'll see the really, it's a story of two generations. In one sense, it's as if God wants Joshua to look back and to learn the mistakes of the past. Joshua, he was in the wilderness. He was there. He was with Caleb. One of the two spies who, who knew what it was to be outnumbered, who knew what it was to have this minority report that they should trust the Lord and go into the land. It's as if God is saying to the people, will you learn the mistakes of your fathers? Will you learn the mistakes of the past generation? The, the lessons of history? Be different. Be your own people. Trust me. Trust my promises. But then having looked back, it's as if there's a sense of closure. And so secondly, look ahead and go in as you mean to go on. There's a sense here of them being set apart. And so faithfully with the future in mind, holding on to the promises of their faithful God. Do you see, this chapter is about faithfulness before fighting. Heart before hands. It's godliness before activity. Here they are slowing down and looking to the Lord. One writer very um, strikingly and challengingly puts it, uh, we can't expect God's blessing to be seen in public if there is hidden compromise in the world of the self. Which makes it a very relevant chapter for people in our time, a people like us. This is a challenge, isn't it, to to our busy world and our busy lives, making time to do this and, 
and not just sliding into activity. Think of how easy it is each morning just to begin the day and to get out of bed and to get on with our to-do list, to, to have breakfast and to have a shower and to do the stuff that we need to do to get through the morning, to get the kids out the house, to get to work, to do, do, do. And yet here in chapter 5 of Joshua is, is a challenge to remember who we are, to trust him, to look to him first. I have to say personally, it was one of the reasons that I really um, appreciated the, the 24 hours of prayer a little while ago that we had as a church. Various things on our agenda to pray for, but what an opportunity to slow down and to seek his face and to look to him, to, to delight afresh in our God and in his grace. And, and those things are good things. 24 hours of prayer is clearly a great thing to do, but... But it's more than that, that the idea that we see in Joshua 5 is an attitude thing. It's a commitment to, if you like, to, to faithfulness over fruitfulness. So how are they going to do that? What does that practically look like? And what does it mean for us? Well, let me read um, verse 2 to 8 again for us. And I think what we'll see in this first uh, pause from the Lord what we'll see is this. Firstly, verse 2 to 8, a people entrusting themselves to the faithfulness of God. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey, so he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. So you see, very practically speaking, that there's a generation of men born in the wilderness who have not been circumcised. The generation who left Egypt had been, but that generation didn't trust the Lord's promises. And so they died in the wilderness, but their children, their sons born in the wilderness now about to enter the land, or just having entered the land, have not been circumcised, and their time has come. But it feels a long way away, doesn't it? I guess our question in one sense is, well, what's the big deal? Does it, does it really matter that much? Because you see, circumcision in and of itself, in one sense doesn't make a massive difference what matters is what it means and what matters is what it points to and so i want to try and track back a bit through the bible and try and swoop over things and and show you some of what circumcision means but also some of what circumcision points to and so we'll see why it matters for us so firstly what does circumcision mean well um, if you could flip back in your Bibles to Genesis 17, I think it's page 17 if you have a church Bible. I'm going to read a big chunk for us from 
Genesis 17 and then verse, verses 4 through to 14. Trying to understand what circumcision means. So, Genesis 17 and verse 4. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So do you see, circumcision was an outward sign that showed that you were a part of Abraham's people, a a people with whom God had covenanted himself, promisings. It was an outward sign that showed that you had given yourself and your family to his faithfulness and his goodness. I'm part of his people, you're saying. I'm set apart for him, you are saying. I'm entrusting myself to him, you're saying. And his promises to me and my people, that they are for me. And yet this generation in the wilderness had not done this. And so now, to be frank, it was going to be costly. Physically, when you're a male of eight days old, it's not quite such a procedure. Maybe you can chat to some medics about that, but now it's much more of a big deal. It was going to be costly. I mean, they're about to head into battle, and so... Tactically, it's not the best thing to do. You want your soldiers fighting fit. I love verse 8. Did you, did you spot it on the way past? And after the whole nation had been circumcised, <clears throat> they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Understatement. It was going to be costly, but it was going to be worth it because this... This act of obedience is essential for them to receive the promises of God and the presence of God as they enter the land, to not be cut off from the people. And so that's firstly something of what it means. That's firstly something of what circumcision is. But secondly, what does circumcision point to? Because because you see, here's the thing. I take it circumcision always pointed ahead. It served a purpose of marking someone out as part of the covenant community. Yes. But it acted as a signpost ahead too. In fact, in fact, just before Joshua began as part of Moses' final sermon in Deuteronomy, it's as if he gets his binoculars on and he looks into the future and he says this. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So, you see, Moses looks ahead to a time beyond him, beyond his death, 
a time not of bodily circumcision where people are marked out by an external thing, but rather of heart circumcision, where people are marked out by internal transformation, meaning they can love him with all of their heart and their soul. And transformed heart, transformed life, changed from their very core. And, and so that means, for example, that Paul, later in the Bible, can write to the church in Colossae and say, chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12, can say, under the new covenant in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. What's Paul saying? He's saying, he's saying, here is the answer to Moses' binoculars. Moses looked ahead and saw that, that physical circumcision pointed ahead to a heart circumcision, a transformation from within. God's covenant people are set apart for him, transformed for him. And so Paul says, this is where it's all been going. And Christians, in Christ, we have it. Paul says, when you were baptised, you died with Christ. When you were raised again with Christ, as if you came out of the water, and now you're a new person, a different person, not ruled by the flesh anymore. You've got the law written on your hearts now, internalised. Christ's power living in you. So what does this circumcision thing mean for us? It, I think it, it means... Firstly, I think Paul would say, if you've not been baptised, then please do come and have a chat to me afterwards. But I want to say that the bigger principle here is vital for us, and that is, that is faithfulness over fruitfulness. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember whom you belong to. Remember that your heart has been circumcised, that you are a new creation, a new person. And there's a lovely glimpse here of, of something of what it means to be his, to recommit ourselves to him, to, to stop and remember before we start to do. This is really helpful for us in our demanding lives as individuals, but as a church as well. Together we cannot let our relationship with God be sidelined. If we don't actively take time to recommit, I think it will struggle. We just end up being activists and doers, forgetting who we are and for whom we do it. I don't want to prescribe how you can do that. No one else can do it for you. I know that. But, but foundationally, there's an attitude thing here. Remembering who we are, remembering that we belong to him. There's a time with him thing here as well. Listening to his voice through his word, talking and praising and Expressing our love for him, worshipping, glorying, seeking his face, enjoying him. Remembering and recognising who we are in Christ and all that he's promised to us and what it means to be his. Those things must come first. But what tonic Joshua chapter 5 is for us in an age of activism. How quickly we forget whom we are in Christ. So the first thing then are people entrusting themselves to the faithfulness of God. That is why we press pause. That is why God pauses them before they head into the land. Second thing we see then, verse 9 onwards, verse 9 to 12, the, 
people of God reliant upon the provision of God. And the two points are closely tied together. There's a slight false distinction I've made in dividing it in this way. But here seems to be, at verse 9, here seems to be a line in the sand and a chance to look forward with hope. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, verse 9. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. You see, so so they've recommitted themselves to the Lord and his covenant faithfulness to them, verse 2 to 8. But now we begin to see some of the outworking of those covenant blessings for his people. And it starts in verse 9. It starts with a new name for where they are to, to mark a new beginning. The word Gilgal there, do you see in the little footnote, the word Gilgal seems to come from the Hebrew word to roll. So God has has rolled away the reproach of Egypt from them. All that they suffered under the people of Egypt. Perhaps even all, all the ways that they strayed after the gods of Egypt. They ran after false gods. The true God now says that's in the past. Let's close the chapter on that. Let's, let's move on to the next chapter. Let's look ahead. It's done with. The reproach has gone. It's been rolled away. Maybe that's something for us. Maybe maybe there are folk in this room for whom something in the past needs to be moved on from. Maybe a past shame, past failures, past experiences, skeletons in the closet. Maybe the Lord is saying, it's okay. It's okay, we can close that chapter and we can move on to the next chapter. And with this new beginning then comes the Passover. They've... um, They've been celebrating the Passover in the wilderness, or at least the previous generation did. You can read something of that as you go through numbers. This isn't a new thing in one sense, this Passover, but for this newly circumcised generation, trusting afresh in his promises, the way is now open for them to keep the feast as they were meant to keep it, to remember the Passover, to celebrate. And actually, it's very striking. If you look down at verse 10, do you see on the evening of the 14th day of the month, puts it in the diary for us but that picks up the exact language from exodus 12 where where the passover was initially celebrated it's it's as if they've come full circle it's as if the first ever passover in the land joshua 5 parallels the first ever passover exodus 12 It's as if the God who faithfully brought them out of Egypt is the God who faithfully brought them into the land. And and with the Passover, then comes the produce of the land, verse 11. It means that the manna stops in verse 12. No longer are they going to be journeying. And so no, no longer do they need this miraculous provision from the Lord. Now they can stand on their own two feet. Now they can eat the produce of the land. Because now they are home. Can you can you imagine in the tents that joyful first family meal sat around the table together? The kids ask, What what is that? And the parents say, That children is a vegetable.
You will get used to it. You might even come to enjoy it. But no longer do we have to eat manna. Now we can eat vegetables, but, but it's more than a vegetable. It's evidence that we are here. We are home. And again, what does this section mean for us? It's, well, it's surely a reminder, firstly, that the Lord faithfully keeps his promises to his people. Again, that verse 9, he wipes away reproach from our, our past lives, that we are loved, that our, our shame is dealt with, that we can move on in one sense. It's a reminder too, verse 10, that we're to be a people who don't forget. We saw this in previous weeks, but a people who reenact and remember regularly God's saving acts for us, for for them, Passover, for us, Lord's Supper, remembering the Lord's body broken for us, the Lord's blood shed for us, remembering who we are, that we are a people whom he has rescued and redeemed for himself. And there's a sense in which on the journey of life, he, you know, he still provides us with manna. We still look to him and his hand of provision for all that we need. You see, the people in Joshua 5, have just reached the land. That is why the manna dries up. But, but we're to remember too that this world is not all that there is, that we have a hope that is to come. One day we will be in the land forever, the land that he's promised us, the new heavens and the new earth. And he will get us there. So maybe, maybe these vegetables, they're just a reminder of the, the feast in his presence that we shall enjoy as we reach the new heavens and the new earth, as we are home. As we finish that, actually I want the character of God to be the thing that's left ringing in our ears. This has been, for the, me this last week or so, the big encouragement, the thing that's excited me. And it's this idea of generations. It, the idea that a generation might fall, but God's purposes will prevail. God's promises will not fail. It's never hopeless. Jesus is building his church and it will be populated. So the first generation in the wilderness, do you know, they were a privileged people. They enjoyed and saw and experienced so much from the Lord. Paul would say of them. He would say that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. But they turned their backs on him. They served self. They set their hearts on evil things. They tested the Lord. And, and yet God's purposes will prevail and his promises will not fail. And so, you know, in one sense, it shouldn't be a surprise at all to us that where there are churches that are empty or going derelict because people in them have lost confidence in the gospel and in the word of God and in the message of Christ and they stop trusting him. But it should be no surprise to see that there are new churches being planted. Why? Because Jesus is building his church and it will be populated because God's purposes will prevail and God's promises will not fail. And, and where there are generations perhaps who lose confidence and stop trusting the Lord. So his message of the gospel is unstoppable. His faithfulness 
is there for all to see. It shouldn't be a surprise that we see new churches being planted. Or, or maybe it should be no surprise that we see churches in the global south thriving and glowing, growing and flourishing and revival and transformation, the gospel at work, bearing fruit. Why? Well, because Jesus is building his church and it will be populated because God's purposes will prevail and God's promises will not fail. Do you see that the privileged first generation might fall, might stop trusting, but the second generation enter in? Because God's purposes will prevail and his promises will not fail because he is faithful. We're to be a people who, who trust our faithful God, who, who strive but do not strive simply after activism, but rather after godliness, after faithfulness. You take the time to pause and remember who we are and who he is. And he will get us to be with him and he will provide what we need. And so we're to be a people who entrust ourselves to the faithfulness of God. Verse 2 to 8. But a people who are reliant upon the provision of God. Verse 9 to 12. Let's have a moment of quiet and then let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you how easy we find it to simply be activists, doers, cracking on with our to-do list each day and not taking the time to remember who you are, to remember who we are. To not pause as they do here in chapter 5 of Joshua. Thank you, Father, though, that we can be um, utterly confident. We can have a humble hope because you are faithful. Lord Jesus, you are building your church and it will be populated and your purposes will prevail and your promises will not fail. Thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. Lord, keep us trusting you, we pray. Guard us from wandering off. Guard us, please, from being people of that first generation who, who enjoyed so much from you. And yet who ended up trusting self. In Jesus' name we pray, for his glory. Amen.